Like I said, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity. I've been looking forward to this gathering. Um, I just read this morning my, my personal time with God from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's a joy to our hearts. It's, it's not a begrudging obligation to gather with other believers. It really is for our edification. I really believe that God has a word for us this morning. And so it's a joy to be gathered with you. Uh, Pastor Greg is in Chaska, Minnesota this morning. Greg and Lori are up there as Greg preaches at Cross of Grace, uh, one of our sister churches in the, the Twin Cities and uh, a great church there. Thankful that he has an opportunity to bring the word to them. And uh, I'm excited to be here with you as we look at God's word to us from Acts 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 4, 23 through 31. Paul Marshall, in his book, Persecuted, published recently, 2013, just reporting on the, the global status of the persecuted church around the world. He writes, the group of religious leaders cringed as Saeed Ibrahim Nizarov, deputy head of the city of Angren's administration, began to raise his voice. It was December 8, 2011, and he was ranting in no uncertain terms about their obligations to obey the religious laws of the state. What he said at first was typical of the government's power-hungry mechanisms. He warned them that they could, under no circumstances, involve themselves in proselytism or missionary activity. He tossed the words out without defining what he meant, but the Christians there knew they should not speak of their faith openly, ever Uzbekistan's constitution technically provides for religious freedom, but more recent laws demand that all religious groups be registered with the government, while also making registration difficult, if not impossible. Proselytizing, or in Christian terms, sharing the gospel with others is banned, as is teaching religious subjects in public schools, or even private instruction in religious principles. Those who violate the religious laws, numerous bans and restrictions are subject to criminal, criminal penalties, including up to 20 years of imprisonment. If that sounds extreme and distant and makes us think, thank God we don't live in a place like that, consider how close to home such bans and restrictions actually are. Holly Shear reported uh, last week, California Senate Bill 1146, currently making its way through the California legislature, seeks to limit the religious exemptions from federal Title IX regulations that colleges and universities use for hiring instructors, teaching their classes, and conducting student services in line with their faith. This threatens religious institutions' ability to require that students attend things like chapel on campus, or keep bathrooms and dormitories distinct according to sex, or require students to complete theology classes, or teach religious ideas in regular coursework, or to hold corporate prayer at events such as graduation at Christian colleges in California. In other words, it threatens every practice that makes 
religious institutions distinct from secular institutions. This last week, Rod Dreher wrote on his blog, if you are an Orthodox Christian and you're not alarmed, you're not paying attention. That alarm should not paralyze you with fear, but it should tell you that it's time to take action. It's time to prepare yourself and your family and your community spiritually and otherwise for the trials ahead. God has a word for us this morning from Acts chapter 4. And I believe that God means by that word to awaken us. That's what alarms do. God means to awaken us, and God means to prepare us, and God means to empower us. When Pastor Greg began this sermon series on the book of Acts several weeks ago, he gave us three objectives, three reasons that we became convinced God desired to address the people of Emmaus Road Church through the words God inspired Luke to write in the book of Acts. And I just want to Put these before us again because I believe that the text we're looking at, Acts 4, 23 through 31, explicitly addresses and advances all three of these objectives. If you haven't written them down throughout this series, do so if you take notes or snap a picture of them as I put them up on the screen here. Number one, our aim in this series in Acts is that God would generate traction for living together on mission. That is, we hope that God would speak to us through his word and cause our hearts to become engaged in his mission of telling the gospel. And in Acts 4, we'll see here the believers pray specifically, God grant to your servants to keep speaking your word with boldness. So that purpose is here in this text. Second, we're praying that God would deepen gospel-centered confidence in the face of opposition and affliction. And the believers in this narrative this morning are facing opposition. People are trying to silence gospel witness. And so they're praying that God would take notice of the threats against them. This text has, I think, one of the deepest, most powerful, gospel-centered, confidence-building passages in all of Scripture in the face of opposition. And thirdly, we're praying that God would fan into flame our continuationist pneumatology. That's one of our convictions as a church, that the Spirit of God is still at work in the world. And we see in this community of believers, they are asking God to keep doing His works and keep speaking His Word, and then He answers in this passage in a dramatic way. So I set those before you so that you can pray with me that God would cause us to experience those things happening in this community of believers called the Emmaus Road Church. Let's turn our attention to Acts 4, 23 through 31, where Luke writes, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, this is your word to us. Speak and let our hearts hear and receive and believe. Accomplish all that you intend for your word to accomplish. Your word never returns void. It always does what you send it out to do. Let it do in us what you intend. Let it stir our hearts for confidence and mission in the face of whatever opposition we may face. And fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Luke picks up this narrative, he begins by highlighting this ruinous report that Peter and John bring back to this community of faith. He, he picks up the narrative, narrative he left off in verse 21, and he says in 23, when they were released, that is, Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So, so let's back up to see what exactly they're reporting back to their faith family. Verses 17 through 21, Luke writes, that the religious leaders had said, in order that this may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go. So what I want to see here is that specifically the warnings and the threats of the previous part of this narrative aim to extinguish all speech about Jesus. That's crucial to see. Verse 17, warn them to speak no more to anyone. Verse 18, they charge them not to speak or teach. So what? Right? Big deal. This whole conflict started when Peter and John were used by God to heal a man who was born lame. The religious leaders didn't say they couldn't heal anyone. Maybe they just need to regroup and as a church community, shift the focus of their ministry, maybe more towards healing the sick. Just keep doing that. They just can't talk so openly about Jesus, but they could keep healing people. The religious leaders haven't said that they can't run soup kitchens or coat drives or homeless shelters, and that would have a tremendous impact on the city of Jerusalem and show everyone they're no threat at all. They could throw block parties and they could eat meals with people. They just can't talk openly about Jesus. No big deal, right? But the apostles understand that this charge is devastating. It's ruinous, and it is absolutely impossible for them to comply with. Why? Because they understand that this strikes at the very heart of the mission that Jesus 
gave them. In their book, What is the Mission of the Church? Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert explain the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring, talking, proclaiming, speaking about Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and then gathering those disciples into churches so that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands now and into eternity to the glory of God the Father. So to simplify, the mission of the church is to talk about Jesus, to make disciples by telling the world about Jesus. And that's exactly what we've seen throughout this sermon series. We began back at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, where Jesus said to his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance, here it is, and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, talked about, spoken in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That's the Holy Spirit who's going to empower you for witness. Or Acts 1.8, which we keep coming back to again and again and again as we move through the book of Acts. Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One commentator writing about Acts 1.8 says, this commission describes the church's key assignment of what to do until the Lord returns. The priority for the church until Jesus comes back, a mission of which that community must never lose sight. And I think he says that because we have a tendency to lose sight, don't we? There are a lot of other awesome things we can do in the name of Jesus besides talking about Jesus, that, that make us feel pretty good about what we're doing. But we must never lose sight of this priority and mission to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. The church exists in major part to extend that apostolic witness to Jesus everywhere. M maybe you're familiar with the famous quote often mistakenly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I think that quote is so popular because if we're honest, telling the gospel, talking about Jesus, it, it's uncomfortable. It makes us uneasy. It's a little bit intimidating. And it's kind of comforting to hear that quote and think, oh yeah, I don't, I don't need to use words. I'll just live it with my life. And if necessary, which is mostly never, I'll use some words to explain. But what we should be seeing in Acts is that preaching the gospel without words is impossible. The mission of Jesus for his church is a verbal mission. It's a verbal ministry. Whatever else we're doing, if we are not speaking, if we're not explaining, if we're not telling, if we're not talking about Jesus, we are not engaged in the mission of God. And I cringe to say that because I'm convicted by the lack of gospel witness 
in my life. So when Peter and John come back to the community, having been released from the religious leaders, having been threatened and warned to talk no more about Jesus, and they report these threats to that community, it's ruinous to them. I just want to say something real quick about threats and warnings and and persecution. At this point in Acts, we have not yet seen physical violence. Spoiler alert, it's coming. In chapter 5, the apostles are going to be arrested again, but this time, rather than just being verbally threatened, they will be beaten. And then in chapter 8, a man named Stephen is going to be stoned to death. And then after that, a man named Saul is going to ravage the church, and he's going to enter house after house, dragging men and women off, committing them to prison. So it's going to intensify. What we've seen in Acts 4 is junior varsity compared to what's coming. However, I don't think it's helpful to us to compare, even in modern day, to look around the world and say, where are Christians suffering the most? And we have a tendency in America to say, wow, since it's so bad over there, good thing it's not very bad here. And I think when we kind of wipe our brow and say, good thing it's not very bad here, we kind of miss the point. It's not so much about who has it worse. What I want us to see here is that all opposition to Jesus, whether it's simply social pressure to not talk about him or physical violence and death, all opposition against Jesus aims to silence Christians and keep us from talking about Jesus. That's what it's all about. So along the spectrum, you have social pressure to not talk about Jesus, all the way up to death, which is the ultimate way to shut up a witness. And in between, it escalates. Threats, imprisonment, confiscating property, beatings, but all of it aims to silence Christians. And so when we think, well, it could be worse, it could be, but maybe it doesn't take much worse to keep us silent. That's convicting to me. So how do these believers respond? They have this resolute response that Luke tells us about in verse 24. When they heard it, this report, they lifted their voices together to God. They cry out to God. They get it. They know that gospel telling is at the heart of the mission, and so they cry out to God together in prayer. And I can't help but wonder, how would I respond? I, I might, if I'm honest, feel inside. If somebody told me, don't witness about Jesus so much, I might think, that was close. I almost had to talk about Jesus. Now I have an excuse. They told me I can't. I I guess I'll just find other ways. They cry out to God. They begin by acknowledging the absolute, the universal, unlimited power of God, the creator. They pray, sovereign Lord, who made the heavens, that's everything above us, and the earth, everything around us, and the sea, everything beyond us and below us, and everything in them. They worship the God who made Everything. It's common throughout the Old Testament to see the people of God when they're faced with threats and opposition and persecution to address God as maker of heaven and earth. Why? Well, because whatever threat's coming against them, whatever powerful army is besieging their city outside the gates, it does not come close to the power of the God who made everything. This kind of argument in logic, it's called a fortiori. It means from the stronger. 
If this bigger, stronger, harder thing is possible, then this smaller, weaker, easier thing is certainly possible. If you watch a runner cross the finish line after 26.2 miles, you don't think to doubt that he could also complete a 5K. It's not a problem at all. And so when Jeremiah is locked up in the city of Jerusalem and the king of Babylon is outside the gates besieging the city, God tells Jeremiah, my people are going to be carried into exile, but I'm going to bring them back. And Jeremiah is wrestling to believe God's promise as we sang that song this morning. Lord, I, I believe all my trust is in what you've said. Jeremiah is struggling to believe. How could that be possible? The future looks so bleak. And so he prays, Jeremiah 32, 17, Oh, Lord God, it's you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. How does he preach to his heart to believe the promise of God? By reminding his heart that this is the God who made the heavens and the earth. So maybe there's some hard providence in your life right now. Maybe your future looks bleak. Maybe there are promises from God that just seem impossible for you to believe. When you pray, let me encourage you, don't just pray generically to God. Begin by addressing God specifically, worshiping God for who he is so that your heart begins to feel encouragement to believe he can actually keep his promises. He made the heavens and the earth. Next, having acknowledged that God has the power to help them, they pray specific promises that they're trusting. They pray, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, God, you said, by the Holy Spirit, through David, you said this, and then they pray word for word, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They pray scripture, promises from God, because this passage of scripture reframes for them. It clarifies and it makes sense of the opposition that they are presently experiencing. Remember Jesus' conversation with those two disheartened disciples on the road to Emmaus? It's that story in Luke 24 where we get our name as a church. Jesus is walking with these disciples who say, we had hoped that this Jesus was the Messiah, but now he's dead and all our hopes are gone. And it's Jesus walking with them, but they don't recognize him as Jesus. And as he's walking with them on that road to Emmaus, he says to them, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not? necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and a few verses later it says he included the Psalms, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things about himself. See, what they didn't get was that God's king was going to take his throne in glory through suffering. And so one time when Jesus foretold his death, Peter actually pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him for talking about dying. And when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples fled and abandoned him because they didn't get it. And here on the road to Emmaus, these disciples are disheartened because Jesus was crucified and they didn't get it. But it was scripture that Jesus used to help them see this was the plan of God. And I wonder if on those seven 
miles that walk between Jerusalem and Emmaus if Jesus didn't take them to Psalm 2. Because it's a glorious psalm about God's anointed king, a descendant of David, taking his throne and ruling the world and all nations worshiping him, but first the nations rebel against him and they rage against him. And so these disciples who knew the scriptures, they were expecting a triumphant king, not a suffering servant. And I wonder if one of the passages Jesus took them to, I wonder if it was Psalm 2, where he said, yes, it's true that the Messiah will rule over the whole earth. But first, he had to suffer. And so here in this gathering, the disciples line up Psalm 2, word for word, with the events that they've lived through. Look at verse 27. They continue praying. Now they're moving on from Psalm 2 and they're praying, Lord, truly in this city, in Jerusalem, in our day, there were gathered together. That's what Psalm 2 says. The kings and the rulers gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Psalm 2 says they gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth gathered against the Lord. Along with the Gentiles, Psalm 2 says the Gentiles gathered together against the Lord and the peoples of Israel. Psalm 2 says the peoples plot in vain. They line up Psalm 2 over their present circumstances and they say everything God said just happened. And that's the source of their gospel-centered confidence in the face of opposition. The suffering of Jesus was not contrary to the plan of God. It was the plan of God. And their hope and their confidence in the face of opposition begins to rise as they see God's promises are true. Maybe they think back to what Jesus said to them, recorded in John 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Again, Rod Dreher in his blog talks about how he recently uh, attended a religious liberty conference he just wrote this a couple days ago. He said, the conference was marked by sobriety in the face of severe challenges the Christian community faces. Believe me, this is far more hopeful than the false optimism that so many Christians cling to. One of the most common observations I heard from those gathered was that it's very difficult to shake one's fellow Christians out of their Pollyanna days. They really do believe that somehow God's going to pull off a miracle that saves us all from suffering because they just can't imagine that God would actually let us suffer. But these disciples don't think that way. The suffering of their Savior happened according to the plan of God. And he told them if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If the world rages against God's anointed king, then certainly they're going to rage against all the people who pledge allegiance to that king, everyone who's baptized into the name of Jesus. And so what we need and what this word offers to us is gospel-centered confidence, 
in the face of opposition. Whether that's as insignificant as social pressure not to talk about Jesus or as severe as violent physical beatings and death. We need God to help us believe that the suffering of our Savior for our sins was his plan. And that if God wills us to suffer, that too will be God's plan. Maybe the most common, most emotionally troubling doubt believers wrestle with and unbelievers wrestle with is, if God is good, why do bad things happen? And there's so much that we could say about that that's beyond our scope at the time that we have today. But like I said at the beginning, I I think that Acts 4, in particular verses 27 through 28, these may be the clearest, most powerful verses in Scripture that affirm two things we wrestle to understand. The sovereignty of God over everything, including evil and suffering. And the responsibility of humans who act willfully in rebellion against God. So I don't want us to miss the opportunity we have to see that here. In, the, in this prayer, these believers facing mounting opposition, they acknowledge, this is just incredible, they acknowledge that the murder of the Son of God was the plan of God. And here's how that gospel truth functions in our hearts when we experience suffering and trial and tragedy and pain, when people wrong us and speak all kinds of evil against us. Here's how that functions. If the greatest evil that the world has ever known, namely the murder of the Son of God, if that was ultimately under God's control, then we as believers trust that every other moral evil and every other pain is also under his control. That's the gospel-anchored nature of our confidence. How do you know that God is good when bad things happen? Because I look at the cross and I see that when the worst thing happened, God was good. He was good when he gave his son for me. That was his plan. He was loving and he was faithful. And so I don't understand it and I don't pretend like I do. I just trust that if he was good there, then he's always good. He's always good. You see, Scripture clearly affirms and it never, ever contradicts two crucial truths. One, God is sovereign over all things including morally responsible human beings. And two, those human beings are morally responsible. And when they act, they do so freely and willingly. And we often wrestle. It's got to either be God's in control of everything and people are robots or people are free and God just takes his hands off the wheel. But look at what the believers affirm. Both these truths here in this prayer. Verse 25, the Gentiles rage and the people's plot. They plot. That that word means they premeditate, they plan their rebellion, they do it willingly, they want to rebel and they think carefully about how to rebel against God. Humans are willful and defiant in the rebellion, but verse 28 says that when those evil people carry out the evil that they plotted in their hearts, they are in the end simply doing what God 
predestined to take place. That word predestined means God ordained it. He determined it. He's behind it in a bigger, more sovereign way than they are in their planning and scheming. They're scheming and it's real. And God is ordering and directing according to his wisdom and his goodness and his love. And we look at that and we go, how could that be? Again, there's way more that I'd like to say here than I can in this time, but part of the answer is that God's aims are different than the aims of evildoers. And we see that here in the arrest and the beating and the crucifixion of the Son of God. Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, was not a robot. He acted willingly. His aims were not the redemption of humanity through the sacrifice of the Son of God for their sins. His aim was 30 pieces of silver and all that he could do with that money. That's what he was aiming at when he acted willingly. And yet in his willful betrayal of the Son of God, God was aiming at something deeper, bigger, more profound. So Judas' aims are greedy and selfish, and God's aims are loving and good in the same thing. That's amazing. We've got to understand this. If we're going to have gospel-centered confidence in the face of adversity. And so these believers, we finally get to their request. What do they ask for? They've acknowledged God as the sovereign creator, the ruler of the world, a world that's embroiled in rebellion against God. So now they make their request. And it would be understandable, wouldn't it, if they asked God, God, look on their threats and punish these rebels. They killed your son. Now they're against us. Take them out. They say, God, look on their threats and give us boldness to keep speaking your word. That's your mission. That's what you've called us to do. They've told us to stop speaking. You told us to speak. Give us what we need to be faithful to your mission. That's what they ask for. And they ask God to continue doing signs and wonders through them. So they're praying that God would keep doing the works of Jesus through them and that God would keep speaking the words of Jesus through them. That's what they pray for. Regarding their request for boldness, one commentator says, this boldness is a divine gift. It's not a moral virtue. It's not a character trait. It's not a personality trait. It's not like, all the experts, they do the talking about Jesus. The, the experts and the extroverts, they talk about Jesus. That's just not my personality. We, we saw in Matt's sermon last week, it wasn't Peter's either. Last time Peter was standing in front of these religious leaders, he betrayed Jesus. He swore that he did not know him. This boldness they're asking for, the fact that they ask for it tells me they're not banking on their personalities to get them through. They're not like, we're just so, such incredibly charismatic people that we just, we've got it covered. We've got all we need. They, they go back to God. Peter and John, having already spoken boldly about Jesus, go back to God and ask for more boldness. And I think what they're asking for is simply renewed confidence to keep believing all that 
God has promised them in Jesus. They believe. God, help our unbelief. And so we come to the remarkable result. Luke just takes one verse to sum it up in response to their prayer. They cried, God heard. They asked, they received. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They asked God to continue performing signs and wonders. And the immediate response was something like an earthquake. And they took that to be confirmation of God's presence among them. And they asked for boldness to keep speaking the word. And what did they get? The promise of the Father. More of the Spirit. This is not a second Pentecost. This is a refilling of the Spirit. I I believe that this is what God means to do among us every Sunday that we gather. Fill us anew and afresh with His Spirit again for sustained witness. We sang the song, Spirit of God, this morning, the Sovereign Grace song. I love songs because they put words poetically and they stick in our minds with melodies and they help us remember the words. And I'd encourage you, commit these words to memory. The blessing of the Father, gift of grace and love, the promise of the Savior for power from above, a wondrous gift that's given What's the Spirit for? For confidence and mission. Holy Spirit, you make all things new. They ask for boldness, bold gospel telling. They get the Spirit of God for bold gospel telling. And so once again, as we've seen throughout this series, the evidence, the observable, identifiable evidence that a person is filled with the Spirit is not mindless babbling, but verbal speaking about the glories of Jesus. And I think it probably began right there in their gathering of believers. I bet they just started to worship God. I bet they started to express verbally their confidence in God. God, this is your plan. Nothing can thwart your plan. We praise you, maker of heaven and earth. And they continued verbally to praise God and thank him that he had included them in their plan. And then it overflowed from that community of believers as witness to unbelievers. As they went about their everyday tasks, their errands and their work, they spoke about Jesus. In a city where they had been warned, stop talking about Jesus. Here's the the word for us this morning. Here's what I think is hope-producing. The mission of Jesus has not changed. It is still his mission for his church to talk about him, to be witnesses to him, to tell the gospel. We're called to verbal ministry. And the promise of Jesus to us, his people, has not changed. He still promises to clothe his people with power from on high through the Spirit for witness. So how can we be filled with the Spirit? I I just, I think the Spirit tends to be such a, a mystical thing in our minds. Like, that's not for me, that's for somebody else. Throughout this sermon series, we've pointed to two passages over and over in answer to the question, how does a person receive the Spirit? 
Galatians 3 and Luke 11. Again, if you haven't written these down yet, write them down in your notes, snap a picture of them. Galatians 3 says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? That is, do you have to do something to earn it? Or by hearing with faith? Paul asks that rhetorically. By hearing with faith. That's how God supplies his spirit and works miracles among you. Or Luke 11, Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So how do you get the spirit? You ask. So the spirit opens the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Jesus as he is revealed in the word. And I think that's what happened here in Acts 4. I, I, I think that's it. I, I don't think the, the filling of the Spirit is something we have to read and go, wow, that's amazing. That could never happen among us. I think what happened was they prayed the promises of Psalm 2. And as they prayed Psalm 2, the Spirit of God opened the eyes of their hearts to see and feel and know and believe the glory of Jesus revealed there. And they became so convinced in their hearts about Jesus revealed in Psalm 2 that they felt confidence to keep talking about Jesus even in the face of opposition. Psalm 2 will do that to you when the Spirit opens your eyes to see. This psalm has been powerful for me as I've read through it and prayed through it this week. Think about these words they were likely reading in Psalm 2. They, verse 1, the raging and the plotting of powerful men against Jesus, God's anointed, is ultimately under the sovereign rule of God. If your heart was convinced of that, wouldn't you feel rising confidence? Even the plotting of the most powerful men on earth cannot dethrone Jesus. And I witness to Jesus. Your confidence begins to build as the Spirit fills you to be convinced of that. Or Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And you read that and you pray, fill me with your spirit. Help my heart to feel the glory of Jesus revealed in this truth. And you become increasingly convinced that no one and nothing can take Jesus off of his throne. And your confidence grows. Or you read verse 8 and verse 9 in Psalm 2, where the Father says to the Son, his King, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And our hearts become convinced, and we say, Yes, Jesus, you will succeed in your global mission. The whole earth, the nations will be yours. They will be. And the confidence of our hearts grows. Or verse 11, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. You kings who rebelled against him and plotted against him, be warned, O rulers of the earth. There's hope for those who rebelled against him. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
And the Spirit of God comes upon us and opens our eyes to see the glory of the mercy of the Son that even rebels who plotted against him can be saved if they will turn to Jesus. And we say, yes, God, you have given us good news to tell the world that those who are estranged from you, those who are in rebellion against you, can be saved. Imagine the confidence Imagine the security and the hope and the bold gospel telling that will result from our lips when the Spirit of God causes our hearts to feel these truths about Jesus. And that's just Psalm 2. Scripture's full of these glorious truths of Jesus. There are just two points of application I want to call you to call us to as a gospel community as we seek to live on mission in the city of Sioux Falls. Would you this week ask God for boldness to speak about Jesus? Pray that for yourself. Pray that for those in your huddle. Pray that for those in your MC. Pray that for the people of Emmaus Road Church and for every gospel preaching church in Sioux Falls that God would give us boldness to speak because that's his mission. And would you go back to Psalm 2 on your own and read it prayerfully, meditate on it, and just pray, Father, give me your spirit so that I could feel the glorious truth of Jesus in Psalm 2, so that my confidence in King Jesus would grow and I would be a bold witness to Jesus in this city. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. We need the gift of your spirit. Clothe us with power from on high. Would you give us boldness to speak about Jesus? Bold witness, gospel telling. Not the kind of self-confidence we try to muster by sheer willpower, but spirit-empowered boldness that comes from confidence in your word. Help our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen.